0: everyone, welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's subject is do sanctions uh, work or are sanctions failing, whatever you want to call it. But I'll give you a background as to why I decided to talk about the subject today. So on the 30th of March... uh, my guest today, Diva Jain, she wrote a wonderful essay in the live mint, which was called the futility of economic sanctions on the futility of economic sanctions to a title, the futility of economic sanctions is well documented. Uh, it was a wonderful piece. And I loved reading it. And uh, that's when I reached out to Diva. And uh, I told her, you know, you need to come and give us you know, an entire history of how sanctions have come up. So and Diva agreed. And here we are. Diva, welcome once again to the podcast.
1: Hi, Kushal. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Greetings to your viewers.
0: All right, Diva, let's start like this as we were discussing, because this is a subject that, uh, to be very honest, even I don't know a lot about. I just know people do things to each other. That's my level of knowledge too, when it comes to (laughs) sanctions. Human beings do things to each other in a global economy. So let's do this for the benefit of everyone. And and I'm going with the working assumption that everyone is like me, because that's how I design podcasts. I, I assume that my listeners and viewers are also like me. They don't know about this subject. So let's start like this. Can you give us a brief history of sanctions and their evolution to the current form first?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I think first, thanks to Mr. Putin and Mr. Biden, because of them, our vocabulary has expanded to include terms like Global rules-based order and economic sanctions. So before the word sanctions also gets cancelled from popular discourse, like Yuri Gagarin, Chekhov, Dostoevsky, Alphabet Z, Russian music, Russian para athletes, we should quickly hold a discussion on sanctions. Well, this is especially important because it appears that a large section of Western laptop class. You know, these uh, upper middle class white men who spent their life exchanging emails and they want to run foreign policy via Twitter, they think that sanctions are a miracle pill to whatever is happening in Ukraine. So this is a good time to put this assertion to test and dig deeper into some data and analysis on sanctions. Well, in this information warfare, Opinions, they masquerade as data. And assertions are made to look like facts. So I will try to avoid using ghost of cave type of uh, information. And I will focus on well-documented facts and research only. So, Kushal, perhaps a good way of structuring the discussion would be to first go through the history and evolution of economic sanctions. Then we can look deeper into motivation for their use and effectiveness lastly perhaps it would be a good idea to analyze some of the major sanctions that have been imposed on russia and how russians are playing the game of economic chess to blunt their impact well before we start i want to offer uh like you know offer a little caveat to your viewers that i am not an expert in geopolitics so i will refrain from uh, getting into the esoteric stuff about NATO expansionism or the history of Cave Roos. So I will try to keep the conversation focused and linear. So I will stick to economics of sanctions. And then let me leave the heavy duty geopolitical stuff to more capable minds. OK, so to kick off this discussion, let us begin by answering what do we mean by sanctions? What are economic sanctions? Well, usually this is a term used to describe actions taken by a group of countries to damage the economy of a target country. So in simple terms, when we think of sanctions, we think of them as a punitive weapon of war used by the powerful to bludgeon the weak into submission. Well, they have an interesting history, and let me briefly talk about it and give you some context. So unilateral sanctions or economic blockades, they have been used for centuries by kingdoms and empires to destroy and weaken their enemies. In fact, the first reported economic blockade dates back to 423 BC, when Athena targeted Magara by blocking market access for Magara's goods. So unilateral blockades, they have been around for a while now. But ironically, multilateral sanctions or sanctions enforced in tandem by several countries, they have their foundations as a weapon of peace. Now, what do I mean by a weapon of peace? Let me let me belabor on this a little bit more. So after the unprecedented destruction of World War One, The victors, they were very eager to banish war. They wanted to create a system so that waging war becomes impossible. So they created a new international organization, the League of Nations, which promised to unite the world and resolve disputes through negotiation. But in order to give this organization an enforcement mechanism so that it could dissuade countries from going to war, the founders forced a fearful weapon of multilateral economic blockades or sanctions. Now, this was a very powerful weapon. And a point to note here is that weapons of mass destruction, like nuclear weapons, they had not been invented by then. Well, however... In World War I, the maximum civilian casualties, they were not caused by gas or aerial bombings, but by economic blockades. So some 3 lakh to 4 lakh people, they died of blockade-induced starvation in Europe and 5 lakh in Ottoman provinces. Now, this was such a potent weapon that U.S. President Woodrow Wilson described it as something more tremendous than war. So people had so much of faith in this economic weapon that everyone thought that a mere threat of economic sanctions would stop countries from going to war and starting military misadventures. So essentially, people lively thought that a brutal economic weapon previously used to wage total war would now be able to guarantee peace. But we all know that sanctions have not been able to stop war. In fact, in some cases, sanctions have led to war. So, for example, when U.S. imposed an oil embargo on Imperial Japan and froze their assets, we all know that Japan responded with an attack on the U.S. at Pearl Harbor. Right. Also, Kushal, here I want to point out that sanctions have a very insidious a very dangerous feature that is missing from conventional military action. They are very, very convenient to use. Why? Because sanctioning someone does not involve sending troops to die or making complex military plans. So with a flick of a pen or with a click of a keyboard, one can impose brutal sanctions that will destroy lives of millions in a target country. So they have become very attractive to politicians because they are a politically expedient tool. So politicians, they don't have to deal with military casualties and body bags with sanctions, and all they have to do is sign few documents. And that is why, despite the fact that sanctions have destroyed entire economies like Cuba, Iran, Afghanistan and many others and pushed millions into penury, Western politicians, they still continue to use sanctions. So while convenience is one of the reasons why politicians, they like using sanctions, there are two key other factors that drive the use of sanctions. Number one. Although it is never stated explicitly, but the most important motivation for sanctions is domestic politics. And let me tell you a story. So when Britain imposed sanctions on Italy for its invasion in Abyssinia in 1935, David George, then a British politician, commented that sanctions, they came in too late to save Abyssinia from subjugation by Italy but they were just in the nick of time to save the British government. Well, I think this holds true for Russian sanctions as well. I mean, they may have come in too late to save Ukraine, but perhaps just in time to save Biden presidency from being tarred with another spectacular failure like Afghanistan, especially now when elections are looming in November.
0: Yeah, they have midterms there.
1: Second, yeah, yeah. Second, U.S. presidents, they are obsessed with the need to demonstrate leadership and to take initiative to shape world affairs. And sanctions, they are a very easy way to demonstrate this resolve. So a foreign power, they can be demonized by howling statements like, by God, this man cannot be allowed to remain in power. And once greatness be projected by imposing sanctions. Well, this this also has an added benefit of satisfying the public thirst for retribution, like Russians are bad guys. Look, I've sanctioned them. The Myanmar Junta are bad guys. Look, I've sanctioned them. Look, I'm upholding the rules based global order by sanctioning all the bad guys. So with sanctions, this political signal becomes most important Their actual effectiveness be damned. So unlike the weapon of peace that they were originally conceived to be, sanctions are basically used by the US and UN as a signaling tool for their domestic audience, then for their allies, and then for their potential enemies.
0: So, so could we call them, then these could be the specific motives, right, behind using sanctions, right? These are the motives then.
1: Yeah, yeah, right, right. And now I'll be talking about whether they are effective or not. So because we keep hearing this question, you know, and there there is so much of talk around sanctions and there is this impassioned rhetoric surrounding their deployment. So the question that we want to now answer is, are they effective? Are they worth it? Mm -hmm. So now one of the things that is usually missing from most current debates is data, and people seem to think that, you know, airy-fairy notions about liberty, about freedom, and about rules-based order, they are a good substitute for hard data on effectiveness of sanctions. Well, this data is quite easily ab- available. And hope Howfer and his co-authors in a very famous book, Economic Sanctions Reconsidered, they present a lot of data on sanctions, their objectives, and their success. And now I just want to point out that I'm not cherry picking research here. So of all the researchers, these guys, they are the most enthusiastic supporters of sanctions. So I'm deliberately using this study that does all it can to overstate the case for sanctions. My objective is to show that even the strongest argument for sanction fails a rigorous examination of their effectiveness. And I will explain later that this study has several issues with how they interpret data. But even even if we ignore these uh, data issues that hobble their analysis, sanctions still have very limited effectiveness and success. Okay, So now, according to the authors, the main purpose of using sanctions has been to dissuade military actions, like stopping Russia from invading Ukraine or regime change. But sanctions are not effective at either of these objectives. And there are several examples on this. So Turkish troops, they remained in Cyprus for more than 30 years despite U.S. sanctions. American green embargo and boycott of 1980 Moscow Olympics did not discourage Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And U.S. sanctions against Iraq, they were not able to dislodge Saddam from Kuwait. And sanctions, uh, they are not very good at regime change either. So, in fact, in case of Cuba, they have failed miserably, especially because Cuba was able to attract black knights such as Soviet Union and Venezuela to help it. And sanctions have also failed against regimes of North Korea, Afghanistan and Iran. So North Korea, they have been able to blunt the effect of sanctions with the help of black knight China, Iran with the help of Russia and Taliban with the help of Pakistan. So all these regimes, they are going strong despite sanctions. Now, there are several such examples, but for me as a statistician, the most interesting part of this study was the statistical analysis on the success and effectiveness of sanctions. Well, this part is dense in data and technicalities. I'll I'll try to simplify this part. And this data, it is easily available on the website of Peterson Institute, and it contains some fascinating information. For example, of the 204 cases of sanctions in database, the most popular motivation for sanctions is regime change. And this accounts for 80 instances of sanctions being imposed. Similarly, when it comes to disrupting war with sanctions, like what the US is trying to do now in Ukraine, there are 19 such instances recorded from 1919 onwards. Of these, sanctions failed completely in 15 instances. So overall, the authors claim that sanctions, they have a small success ratio of 31% for regime change and 21% for military misadventures. We will see now how some of these claims, they are extremely doubtful. But uh, before that, let us look at another interesting part of this study, and that is the econometric analysis on the drivers of sanction success. So according to the authors, sanctions are likely to be more successful if the goal of the sanctions are modest, like, say, hostage release or handing over of the terrorist suspects. Sanctions, they are more effective when the relation between the sender and the target country, they have been cordial. And there has been significant trade between the sender and the target country, like in case of South Africa. Also, the geographical location of the target country is important. So sanctions, they are less successful against countries in Asia, sub-Saharan Africa and Western Hemisphere. Well, importantly, in the context of the current conflict in Ukraine sanctions, they have been less effective for regime change post 1989. Another point to note here is that sanctions fail if the target country, they have stable government and a strong economy. So these guys, they give us a lot of data. Now, now a pet peeve of mine with studies like this is data quality. So despite the fact that this study looks statistically rigorous prima facie, there are several issues with how the authors interpret data variables. For example, the decision to classify a particular sanction as effective is completely subjective and arbitrary, and it overstates the success rate of sanctions. The authors, they classify sanctions against Germany in World War I and Japan and Germany in World War II as being successful when it is obvious that the success was due to military factors and not due to sanctions. Again, the authors, they claim that U.S. sanctions against against India and Pakistan, they were successful in stopping the war in 1971 when we know that the war was stopped because Pakistan surrendered and Bangladesh was liberated. So by attributing a successful outcome to sanctions while other military or political or diplomatic forces were also at play, authors overstate this small 20-30% success rate of sanctions. Well, a brilliant researcher, Robert Pape, has also proven this. And let me share some uh, data with you. So Robert Pave has proven that of the 40 cases of sanction success claimed by them, only five stand up for detailed scrutiny. 18 were settled by the use of force. In eight cases, there is no evidence of success. Six do not classify as instances of sanctions. And three are indeterminate. So the only real clean example of sanctioned success is South Africa. And this success was largely driven by the fact that South Africa was culturally and economically enmeshed with the Anglosphere. So therefore, they could not survive this pressure of being cut off from the Western world. So summarizing these empirical studies, even with very generous assumptions, sanctions have very low success rate and if we look at these studies more rigorously sanctions have never really been successful in a big way but then so i now, have a i
0: have a question here i have a question yeah, sure, sure, a question yeah. Yes, now yes. uh are there any studies so like are there any studies that have challenged these studies then
1: so, Kushal, as I pointed out, this is the most rigorous study which is for sanctions. So, like you know, the other studies, they they clearly prove that the sanction success is very limited. So, here the authors they are saying that the the, the success rate of sanction is 20 to 30 percent. And Robert Pape has challenged this study. So, what mm-hmm. he is doing is he's actually running a regression model. Okay. And I didn't want to talk about it specifically, but since you're asking, so they run a regression model and uh-huh. the coefficients then are very, you know, and and then when the, when he gets the coefficient, he actually points out that these are the reasons of sanctioned success and it fails in most of the cases.
0: All right. Fair so enough. I, fair I enough. can
1: share that paper with you. Yeah. It, it's fascinating, right. yeah. actually.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. I'll maybe add yeah. them in the description or something.
1: Sure. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so the big question now remains is that given all the brouhaha about sanctions, why do sanctions fail? Well, there are several reasons for this. The key reason for their failure is that sanctions are imposed for very ambitious goals like regime change. These goals, they are too large to be achieved by sanctions alone because ambitious goals, they require global coordination, which is often lacking. Like the sanctions in case of Russia. So these sanctions, they are not fully coordinated by all major power centers and hence they lack the economic bite to make them effective. A second reason for their failure is that sanctions, they create their own antidotes. Now, what I mean by this is economic sanctions, they may unify the target country, both both in support of its government and in search of commercial alternatives. Well, this outcome is also evident in a number of episodes. So Iran has embedded a siege mentality in its citizens And it has carried the weight of sanctions over years. And so much so that West is now forced to offer it a nuclear deal. Now, in the current context, does US and EU think that hyperinflation in Russia will make West so popular that Russian people, they will rise up and overthrow Putin? I mean, looks like they've learned nothing from Weimar Germany. You know, Kushal, these sanctions, they turn middle class liberals and reformers into angry nationalists. And we have already seen Putin's domestic popularity. It has gone up after these sanctions in Ukraine. Well, I will just digress here a little bit. The Russian liberals, they are not like the Indian liberals and well, Indian liberals. They are a breed apart and their self-loathing is at another level only. And they are gluttons for this Western punishment. So anyway, moving on, a third reason why economic economic pressure may fail is that sanctions, they may prompt powerful or wealthy allies of the target country to assume the role of Black Knights. And their support can mitigate the effect of sanctions. Well, a current example is China playing the Black Knight to Russia. A fourth uh, possible reason for their failure is that economic sanctions, they are counterproductive and they may alienate allies. So what this means is when a sanctioning country's allies, they do not share its goal. They become skeptical about the need for sanctions and they often refuse to take stern measures against the target country. Well, this is a classic situation that we are seeing today with many allies of the US like Israel and Saudi Arabia, not backing sanctions and potential allies like India remaining neutral. And uh, here I want to talk about an example that is quite relevant in the current context. So in 1981-82, when the first Soviet European gas line was being constructed, the U.S. tried to scupper the project. The Europeans, in spite of being staunch members of NATO, they refused to cooperate with the U.S. and halt the pipeline project. They actually wondered who the real target of the sanctions was, the Soviet Union or their own economy and firms whose trade was hard hit by these measures. So this dispute between the allies made sanctions ineffective. Now, you know, in the current context, you know, these Italians, they were fighting to keep their Valentino heels and Brioni suits out of the ambit of sanctions on Russia. And France and Germany, they are not vehemently supporting sanctions like the UK and US. Right now, Kushal, still there is extraordinary support across the West for these sanctions. It is not clear that six months from now, after a period of painfully high prices and perhaps a weaker economic growth, if that support will still be there. Well, U.S. is hurt more than the U.S. EU is hurt more than the U.S. U.S. only imports 8 percent of its oil from Russia. And Europe relies on Russia for more than 40% of its gas requirements. Also, Europe's economy will take a bigger hit than the US. Europe is now facing stagflation. So as of now, Europe is still taking this in its stride. But after a few years, when it has to pay more for the expensive LNG from the US, while Americans, they laugh all the way to the bank, Will Europeans still have the same view on sanctions? Okay, so now coming to Russian sanctions. Mm -hmm. We all know that they have been the most extensive set of sanctions imposed on any country after World War II. And many Westerners, they have argued passionately for them and they are trying to convince the world that they would succeed. But, you know, we have to bear in mind that Russia is a very large and powerful uh, country. Also, global coordination, which is a critical driver of sanctions success, is missing. Major power blocks like the Arab world, Israel, India and China, they have not imposed sanctions on Russia. Now, as far as the sanctions against Russia are concerned, they can be divided into four broad categories financial, merchandise trade, corporate, and personal. So finance is where the US and the EU, they have pulled out the big guns. Many Russian banks, they have been kicked out of SWIFT, which impairs their ability to do cross-border trade. Russian banks, they have been targeted in the US and UK, and their assets have been frozen. And in an unprecedented move, Approximately half of $630 billion in Russian reserves have been frozen. Now, coming to merchandise trade, U.S. has banned imports of Russian oil and restrictions have been put on import and export of several military dual use and consumer goods to Russia. In fact, even the Nord Stream 2 pipeline has been frozen and high tech imports by Russia, they have been banned. Corporations, they have been pressurized, or they have voluntarily left Russia. Putin and individuals close to him, like oligarchs and his close advisors and family members, they have been sanctioned. Now, the problem is that these sanctions, they will not only impose cost on Russians, but on everybody else in the world, most of whom have nothing to do with this conflict. Also, importantly, the second order effects or the unintended consequences of these sanctions, they can do serious damage to global economies still recovering from COVID. And it can roll back decades of progress made by global trade and finance. So, you know, the most dangerous aspect of the sanctions package are these financial sanctions. By weaponizing dollar and global financial system, U.S. and EU, they are playing with fire. Freezing reserves is going to sow major doubts about dollar as a reserve currency and mandarins at RBI and People's Bank of China and many other central banks, they will be giving serious thought to risk to their reserves from American whims. Well, I would not say that this would lead to de-dollarization, but it's a very risky move. And ironically, it won't really help in stopping Russia. They still have access to half their reserves and they don't need more reserves to run their country because they are an export surplus economy. Besides this, Russians, they have also countered this move very effectively. So, you know, Kushal, the stated objective of these sanctions, they were to send Russia's currency into freefall. Well, Biden even said that ruble is now rubble. Like everything else, he was wrong on this too. And ruble is now back to its pre sanction level against dollar. And there are several, several reasons for this. One, the Russians, they have imposed currency controls which means rubles cannot be freely exchanged for dollars by Russians. Second, they have banned foreigners from selling Russian securities. Now, this again meant that foreigners, they could not exchange rubles for dollars from asset sales. So now, essentially, what has happened is demand for dollars from within Russia went down. And then they backed ruble with gold and raised interest rates so that holding rubles becomes more attractive. Well, Then the Russians, they came up with their main gambit, asking for ruble payments from unfriendly countries for energy and other exports. And well, this is how they are trying to force Europeans to make payment in rubles. So Europe will transfer euros to their account in Gazprom Bank. So what is Gazprom Bank? Well, it's, it is a Russian bank that processes energy related transactions. So Europeans, they will create a special ruble account also in Gazprom Bank. When they pay in euros, Gazprom Bank will immediately convert these euros to rubles and transfer it to their ruble account. Now, they will now have to pay these rubles to Russia. Thus, the market had anticipated that demand for rubles will go up if this is implemented. And this market anticipation has made rubles stronger. Well, I think this was an outstanding chess move by the Russians to stabilize their currency. Now, banning of uh, foreigners from selling Russian securities, it will impose massive cost on foreign investors. So foreigners, they hold one seventy billion dollars worth of Russian securities. They will not be recovering much money from their holdings. Also, because of sanctions, Russia has started making interest payments on dollar bonds and rubles. So again, the Western holders of these bonds, they will either lose money or they will have to accept rubles. Now, kicking some Russian banks out of the SWIFT, it is likely to have little effect. Transactions, they can always be routed through banks that are still on SWIFT, like the Gazprom bank. Moreover, Russians, they have their own SWIFT-like system, or they can use the China SWIFT-like system called the CIPS. Russian banks, they can always uh, use banks based in China or other third world countries to transfer funds and work around the SWIFT bank. And one of the several ways in which they can do is transacting in currencies other than dollars, something which Russia and India, they are keen to do. So we see that these financial sanctions, they can be countered or they have been countered very easily. But what will bother most neutral countries for several years is the fact that Russians have been drugged. And I will borrow a phrase from cryptocurrency world. Just like the issuers of new crypto coins, they can pull a rug on its holder by vanishing. Similarly, the U.S. has pulled a rug on Russians by vanishing their dollars. Risking the reserve status of USD and violating the sanctity of of bond contract to bankrupt Russia, it can backfire. And this is something that people are unlikely to forget for a long time. Now, if we come to merchandise sanctions, they have been very dangerous for the world and not just for Russia. And let me pull out some data for you. So Ukraine and Russia, they, they export 26% of global wheat, 16% of corn, 30% of barley, 80% of sunflower oil, 50% of neon, and majority of nickel, palladium, aluminum, and iron. Russia is also an extremely important source of, of fertilizers, and not to mention Russia's vast exports of energy. Now, because of sanctions, what has happened is that commodities that have not been blocked, they are are also not being exported because the shippers and the insurance companies, they are very scared of touching Russian cargo or else they'll be punished by the U.S. As a result, wheat and fertilizer prices, they have skyrocketed. Cooking oil prices, they have jumped up by more than 50%. So we see that the most vulnerable, they are getting hit the hardest due to sanctions. Sanctions, they have exposed the world to major food shortages, inflation and political instability that accompanies it. Now say, hypothetically, what will happen if Europe stops buying Russian gas? Russia will still be able to export oil and gas. Iran did the same despite sanctions and after sanctions were tightened well let me elaborate on this a bit more so despite sanctions for years Iranian and Venezuelan hydrocarbons they were sold across the world well how 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 this happened so they were blended with products from other parts of the world to obscure their source of origin and they were, sold as blended product like say malaysian blend or a singaporean blend and so this was basically oil from these sanctioned countries that had been mixed with oil from non sanctioned countries and it was being sold as a new blend of oil well this is already happening with russian petro products for example shell which publicly claims to have stopped buying russian oil is mixing Russian diesel with diesel from other sources and selling it as Latvian blend of diesel. And in doing so, it is saying that for a product to be of Russian origin, 50% of its content must be from Russia. If it contains less than 50%, then it is not of Russian origin and they are happy to trade it.
0: This is hilarious.
1: Exactly. And this is how, you know, the Russian diesel is flowing across Europe, despite the fact that all companies, they claim that they are not buying Russian hydrocarbons. And, you know, Kushal, what will happen in time? More such backdoors will open and maintaining tight sanctions will be very difficult. Now, like Iran, Russia can also offer longer credit periods to buyers that will make Russian energy more attractive. They can offer discounts like what they are doing in case of India. To mitigate shipping and insurance issues, Russia can insure cargo and they can use their own ships. Now for processing financial transactions, they can use burner banks. Now, what are these burner banks? So like the one-time use burner phones, these banks, they are set up for the purpose of trading with one country only. For example, to trade with Iran, China had set up Bank of Kullon. All this bank did was to process transactions between Iranian oil companies and the Chinese oil companies. So even After it was banned by the U.S. from transacting with U.S. banks, it did not matter because it never needed to do it. Now to get around restrictions of importing high-tech and other equipment, Russia can set up offshore shell corporations in tax havens and it can trade through them. Well, Iran has perfected this art of using offshore shell companies And they have been able to trade oil and other goods, despite massive sanctions. So all these merchandise sanctions, they are going to be very risky and expensive for the world, but it will not be able to stop Putin. Perhaps the most ironical part of sanction saga has been the MNCs leaving Russia and how the so-called MNCs have become instruments of state policy. So MasterCard and Visa, they left Russia in a half, but Russians, they have their own network, Mir. so this is unlikely to be disruptive, but perhaps Master and Visa, they don't realize that they have damaged their credibility, and now every country will want to have its own payment network, independent of Master and Visa. Well, other countries leaving Russia, they will not be able to extract any value from the assets that they are leaving behind. And they will have to take a lot of losses. And let me pull out some data to show the collateral damage to the West. So BP has taken a hit of 25 billion, Shell 5 billion, Citibank 10 billion, SogGen has lost 3.5 billion. And by hitting the Russian airline companies, sanctions have ensured that airline leasing companies who have lent Russian airline $10 billion, they will lose all their money. In fact, even Nord Stream 2, half of the cost of $11 billion, it was paid by Gazprom. And the rest came from European companies like BASF and Shell. So they lose all of that. Okay. So now the Russians, they have also hit back hard by saying that they will seize assets of these fleeing firms, which means now the businesses, they can continue to operate under different names. The MNCs, they will not be able to recover penny from their investments. So I think this conduct of MNCs is a classic example of cutting your nose to spite your face. Well, now, personal sanctions on Putin and his associates and oligarchs, they won't really matter because they are smart enough to hide their wealth in places that cannot be reached or identified. I mean, they have been playing this game for long enough time to know how to do this. Now, one last point that I want to make is that sanctions have massive compliance costs. So according to studies, The legal and other fees paid by companies for complying with sanctions is about 50 billion dollars a year, even before Russia and Ukraine crisis. Well, this will shoot up exponentially because Russian sanctions, they already have a 13,800 pages of legalese. Also ensuring that sanctions they are being followed will require constant monitoring by Western institutions. Well, this is very costly and it leads to sanctions fatigue because after some time, these institutions, they get tired of the burden and cost of monitoring and sanctions. They lose their economic bite because they are not strictly monitored by anyone. So this point on sanctions fatigue, this is often overlooked. And we have to understand that sanctions, they are as good as their weakest link. So now to sum up uh, this discussion. Sanctions are blunt tool of uh, instrument of total war. They impose massive cost on the targeted population, and it leads to collateral damage. They have second-order effects that are not well understood by Western politicians, and they use it like a monkey with a crop harvester, in a very crude and unsophisticated fashion, causing harm to everyone. They hardly yield any result and therefore they have become instruments of signaling which only help politicians get elected and perhaps uh, project bravado due to a sense of Freud and overcompensation. So this is all I have, folks, and I'm happy to take questions. I I hope I have not fatigued you all with sanctions fatigue. No, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. So perfect. So good. I'm going to start with a very intelligent question someone asked because obviously, and so so I guess I'm I'm making an assumption on behalf of the questioner because the case you have presented is that sanctions kind of fail, right? So the obvious question is then what should be used? instead of sanctions? That's the first question.
1: Exactly. So this, this actually is an excellent question, Kushan. And let me try to answer it. So before we look at alternatives, we must define objectives. So if the objective is to dissuade military misadventure, then the best way to do this is using diplomatic measures. Mm -hmm. So though preventive diplomacy and politics, they are best for dissuading military adventures by others. Both of them, they require high skill, which seems to be short in supply in Western capitals. Historically, we have seen that direct military intervention is also very effective, but it is politically dangerous and expensive. Now tell me, if US and EU, if they wanted to save Ukraine, why did they not allow it to enter NATO for 30 years? Mm -hmm. If they wanted to protect Ukraine, why did they not station NATO troops on Ukraine to dissuade Russia? Why did they lead Ukraine down a garden path where the Ukrainians thought that the West had their back, but then they realized that the Russians, they have have them by their throat. Mm -hmm. So the only way to dissuade military misadventure is to provide security umbrella to a weaker country. And if you don't have the ability to do it, don't try to dissuade it by plunging the global economy into chaos. Well, this conflict, I think, would have been avoided if the West had focused on preventive diplomacy and in politics instead of sloganary.
0: So, so now, let, me play the the, de- they... let me play the devil's so, advocate here. Uh, little, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just have to come here. So let me play the devil's yeah. advocate and let me add one more bit to this question as a follow up so that you get it. Sure. Now, yeah. I, I get what you're saying, but then somebody mm-hmm. might come back and say, OK, I get it. Sanctions don't work. OK, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then what do you do in the case of, you know, let's say a North Korea and King Jong-un?
1: Well, uh, sanctions are clearly not effective because they are going on with their nuclear program. So sanctions will not work. Sanctions. So now, now a corollary to what you have asked me is, can sanctions be used at all? So if I, if I can put it in this way so they can be used as a negotiating tool they work best when they are applied in a careful and a targeted manner and after accounting for all the cost and benefit and as we have discussed Kushal, they work best when when they are applied for narrow and well-defined objectives like forcing someone to negotiate or changing a small aspect of country's foreign policy Mm -hmm. so And, uh, you know, Libya is an example here where the Lockerbie suspects they were handed over due to sanctions. So so and in Korea's case, the problem is that this is this is regime change and sanctions will definitely not work in that case. In fact, sanctions are the worst tool for regime change. Because Mm -hmm. they help the regime tighten their grip on power and they hurt the very people whom the West claims to save. So See, one point that I want to make here is, yes, you, you're saying something?
0: No, no, I, I actually, uh, well, I can ask it later. Please, please complete your point. Yeah. Okay. So th-
1: this is one important point that I want to make here is that sanctions, they are a serious instrument of foreign policy and they should be employed only after consideration and deliberation, no less rigorous than what would precede a military intervention because their effects can be more devastating. Mm.
0: Got it, got it, got it. So, okay, let me ask this question then. Uh, So someone has asked, how will the sanctions affect India now? Uh, Let's say in comparison to, let me uh, draw the analogy and the person says, What happened during the Pokhran test? So how much of an impact these current sanctions on Russia? Because as you said, uh, sanctions have second order effects and collateral damages, Mm -hmm. right? So, So what kind of an impact are you considering where these sanctions on Russia as of now I mean, I'll give you a small example. You know, you mentioned about virtue signaling. It was so stupid. I just saw Wimbledon is not going to allow Russian and Belarusian players to the do... as if unke tennis racket se record, se, se unko bada kuch ho wala. It's just ridiculous. Exactly. Now we, we we are reaching points of absurdity that I've never seen in my life. But but let's say if I was to compare this to uh, the in time, what do you think is the situation as of now for India?
1: Well, I think sanctions will not affect India directly because, uh, uh, but one way in which sanctions can affect is rising in commodity prices, and another thing that the US can do is they can impose secondary sanctions on us. But we'll be able to take it quite easily. But US Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, when they will it, it will just sink down at the bottom of Indian Ocean. So they'll
0: they'll not do something like that. That's my sense. Yeah, I I guess it could be, but that's the whole point, right? We we never understand how these things work. We never understand mm-hmm. the the core core thing. I mean, like I am still yet to figure out. In fact, one of my questions was going to be that, who was this genius who came up with this idea? Like we will scare you. Are are sanctions <laughs> now like, nah, nah, I, okay, let me break it down in a very weird analogy. Are sanctions <laughs> like night curfews of COVID?
1: <laughs> I don't know. So, the, <laughs> so victors, they came up with, uh, uh, victors of World War One. they came up with this uh, tool of economic sanctions, but you know, night curfews in COVID, we still followed. But economic sanctions, they don't work. And in fact, longer the time period of sanctions, the more they fail because, you know, people, they get time to adjust and adapt and they find alternative mechanisms. So it doesn't work.
0: All right. So someone yeah. has asked this question. Do you think that Russia is almost surviving by US sanctions because they have nothing to lose. And they also, they don't export any finished goods by the same, but the same kind of sanctions can actually severely hurt countries like India and China. I guess what they're trying to uh, see, uh, I guess the parallel they're trying to say is that the nature of the sanctions have to play a very significant role. And also the nature of the country in the larger, uh, you know, network, We live in an interconnected world. So I guess China Mm -hmm. being the manufacturer of the world, if sanctions were laid on China, China would suffer a lot more. Uh, Do you think that would be the case?
1: Well, I think sanctions on India and China will hurt US the most. So they'll never do it.
0: (laughs) But why, why would you say that?
1: Well, China, so, okay, so what what did we see in COVID? So everyone said, look, we'll be, you know, shifting supply chains from China. We'll be, you know, doing XYZ to China. But nothing happened because China is an export powerhouse and on which the whole world depends. So whatever it does, it can easily get away with. Hmm. So, so let me let me okay. So the Uyghurs in China and the Tibetans, they have been repressed for ages, Koshal, but we don't hear a pip squeak from the the Western policymakers. Hmm. So so
0: so here's the situation, and, and,
1: right? And, and, and I and I just want to I just want to add one point here. So I think US is making a strategic mistake here. So U.S. is trying to look at the whole situation from a European security prism when actually it is an Asian security problem where the main enemy is China. So instead of fighting the one that it should be fighting, it is fighting the one it can fight.
0: hmm All right. So, so, okay. Let me ask this question. This is just came to my mind. Would have, would, would there have been any particular sanction that would have Mm -hmm. worked from the Western countries on Russia in this current uh, fiasco that's going on?
1: Well, I don't really think so because Putin being an autocrat, he would be impervious to any sanction and he has a lot at stake. I don't want to get into all of this. But if we see, if you if you mean to say, is there an end to this? So the end has to be only through political, military or diplomatic measures and definitely not through sanctions.
0: I kind of get what you're saying because, you know, McDonald's, like uh, the silly gooses that they are, they pulled out of Russia. Yeah. What did he do? He mm-hmm. just took over the entire infrastructure. He was like, Thank you very much. And I'm just gonna jump on it. I mean, I don't know what the Americans are thinking. I I exactly. Just find it- and this is this
1: this is what I said, Kushal. So you know, when they are leaving, they of course can't take the assets and everything with them. So the business will continue as usual under different name. I mean, they are the ones who have lost it so it's a collateral damage to the west which i think they are underestimating
0: yeah it's uh it's uh it's it's interesting okay i had one one or two uh, you know okay maybe i'll ask this question first and then i'll ask my question so <laughs> okay. now so you made this point right you said the world is watching how, especially how these corporates are being weaponized by America, which is part Mm -hmm. of their foreign policy. So how does one protect oneself against this weaponization of financial assets or finance as a general subject and many other corporate houses by the West?
1: Well, it's okay. So it's very pertinent in the the current context. So, so you know finance has been weaponized in two ways in uh, case of russia one is through weaponization of payment systems and other is through weaponization of dollars and reserves so now as far as the payment systems are as far as payment systems are concerned so we are good because uh, in terms of payment systems and data networks we are atmanirbhar so rupee is a very good example in this regard now we have made some progress kushal on data localization but there is still room for improvement on this front well the current provision of uh, the current version of the uh, data protection bill it has diluted the mirroring provision so hopefully government will ensure that data on indians is localized 100% Now, we must also explore alternative messaging systems for banking transactions so that we are not completely dependent on SWIFT. I mean, it's not easy, but an effort in this direction we we have to take. Now, as far as alternatives to dollar and euro are concerned, we really don't have too many good options. And one way to deal with this is because is to diversify reserves such as dollar, euro, yen, gold, silver, etc., and we should try to reduce dependence on dollar as much as possible. Now, in fact, uh, you know our position is even more complicated by the fact that we are we have trade deficits, so we need dollars to pay for the imports. So the very first step for us would be to become trade surplus at the very least. And if our exports are higher than imports, then our dollar dependency will go down significantly. So the only way forward for India is to be strong, self-reliant and become an export powerhouse on which the world is dependent. I mean, this is our best insurance against Western winds.
0: Yeah, so again, good. Somebody has asked this question. I was going to ask you this question because I thought Mm -hmm. of it. So, look, India's economy is literally intertwined with China. Now, here's Mm -hmm. the issue. See, this is how. Now, if India recognized Taiwan officially, like we recognize Taiwan as a separate country or something of that sort, or we got into some serious conflict with China and now the Chinese impose sanctions on us. That could have a huge impact on us, right? Because our, let's say the pharma industry, like a a significant number of APIs that the pharmaceutical industry in India uses are literally manufactured in China and we are totally dependent on them. Whether we like it or not, that's just the fact of the ground, right? On the ground, this is the reality. Now, what do we do? Now, obviously you're going to tell me, I know, and I'm not saying you're wrong. You're going to say, well, we need to work on that and we need to make sure we're not that reliant on China, right? Um, I I still think that there has t- so this was going to be my last question to you before we wrap up. So, are we officially into a phase, thanks to Putin's craziness and the Americans' overreaction? Have we officially sung the death nil kneel, kneel, or whatever we call it in English? You know, we've sung the final song of globalization. Do you think?
1: Well, okay. So let let me so you've asked me two questions. Let let me first try to answer the second part. So, you know, Kushal, there is a lot of talk about, you know, new economic order and deglobalization and so on and so forth. So, of course, you know, some sort of ser- self-reliance happened even, you know, before COVID. And before that, when you we were seeing tariffs being imposed by US. Uh But, you know, these these economic orders, they they take decades to evolve. So, you know, by a single shock event, if we say that, you know, we have uh, sort of turned off the switch on globalization, that's not very correct way of putting it, because it's not very easy to shift supply chains away from China or say from any other country. Of course, you know, there everyone now, every country wants to focus on, you know, Building its defense against the Western whims, but it's not very easy. So it's too premature to say that you know it's an end of globalization based on single shock event.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. I I I do And, 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 and
1: Okay. And and your and your first question and your and your question on China. So I think we run a trade deficit with China. So sanctions on India by Chinese they will hurt them more, and yeah. uh, of course then. What still, if they do it, as you know, we, we depend on China for uh, pharma and API, local uh, pharma API, etc. So, that localization process that has already begun. So, we are already focusing on being Atmanirbhar, on being self reliant. So, I think this is our only insurance against anything that might happen.
0: So, so I'll explain why this question, even I thought of it and it was very nice of a live viewer to also ask it. So what yeah. happened during COVID? i just imagine mm-hmm. the scenario. The Americans did not have masks. The Americans did not have PPE kits. And lo and behold, they did not have tissue paper. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the three things they did not have. And even to this day, diva, i listen to podcasts mm-hmm. where people even now have this discussion that why are we still reliant on china i recently heard a podcast uh, on sam harris's uh, thingy where sam was discussing and somebody was raising this question now my th- that was the background as to why i was doing that S- I guess the economies of scale of doing business at a global level are so lucrative that even sanctions, I guess, will not break the back of that bogey, right?
1: Spot on, spot on.
0: Yeah, so so I guess that, w- yeah. that would be the case. So, yeah, yeah I, I was like fascinated by this whole subject as to, you know, this is like a chess match. Okay, I'll do a little bit of this. You'll do a little bit of that. Then let's see how it works out. But I guess, you know, when I read your paper, to be very honest, I got the shock of my <laughs> life. I thought, you know, these sanctions, they are amazing. They work. And, you know, it's, you know when I saw your day, you know, you shared those studies. I was like, whoa. So apparently they don't work and people just keep on doing this. So I guess sanctions are like a placebo. <laughs> you know,
1: <they> <laughs> That's what they think. That's what they think. Like a miracle pill.
0: Yeah. So So yeah. I guess, yeah. So it's it's very interesting, Diva, but I'll do this. Uh, I'll give you the last words so that, you know, if there is anything else you want to say before we wrap things up.
1: No, I think uh, we have, I have uh, fatigued your audience enough with sanctions fatigue, and I think we have covered most of the points. Another thing that we might, you know, talk about is rupee ruble trade. So. Aha yeah so i mean this is it is quite fascinating so what is rupee ruble trade if uh, uh, so basically it means if i am buying from russia i'll I'll try to simplify it this is pretty complicated so if i'm buying from russia i will pay for it in rupees and if russians they are buying for it they will have to pay it in, in rubles so for example let, let us try to understand this with example so if i say export 5 5 million worth of goods to russia and they and they export us 4 million worth of goods so the balance 1 million then the balance 1 million how do we settle it so i mean this is a very fascinating way of doing it but the challenge is the exchange rate volatility because now because because of tight capital controls in Russia. So this is one thing that we'll have to be careful about because everyone is very gung ho on the rupee-ruble trade, but there are certain risks. Although there is great opportunity for Indian exports, our trade balances to improve with Russia, getting cheap energy, but we have to be wary of the exchange rate volatility. And I think I'll leave leave on this and... Thank you very much, Kushal. And thanks to your viewers for being such an engaging audience. Thank you.
0: Well, well, th- yeah. thanks a lot for coming. I, I have to say, I always enjoy reading your articles in Live Mint. I always learn something uh, when I read you. And you know, to everybody, what I'm going to do is this is what you do. So first of all, you go to the description of the podcast and you can go and check out uh, Diva's Twitter handle. So you can go and follow her on Twitter and then uh, just below that, I have a Muckrack uh, link. Now, what I do nowadays is I put everybody who writes consistently, I just put their Muckrack account because that way you get to read all of their work. It's just more convenient that way. Single article, you can articles articles, ja the Padlo. And as far as I'm concerned, before we wrap up today, as always, once again, please remember, subscribe to the Charvak podcast channel, like the video. You can also go and, you know, leave your ratings on iTunes and Spotify and other places. You can also become a member of the Charvak podcast on YouTube or join on Patreon or buy the merchandise or send your donations through UPI. I will see you guys with another discussion. As always, namaste. Take care. Bye bye.